We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and Beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. Something else will be needed if we want Tesla to win that competition. Xi Jinping is the is the alpha male, and you know these guys are nothing to Xi Jinping. They're like little little nothing people, and Elon Musk is like nothing to Xi Jinping. Germany needs to have a robust, self interested nationalism that is not Nazi. You know, Germany has never had a you know democratically supported, robust nationalism, liberal nationalism. Right? They never had that. The closest thing they ever had was under Bismarck. You know, maybe the Christian Democrats can can rediscover this in Germany. But Angela Merkel wasn't getting it done. Angela Merkel was like, maybe if we buy a whole bunch of stuff from Russia, they'll be our friends. <laughs> no, do not make yourself dependent on importing stuff from your main geopolitical enemy. That doesn't work. It didn't work for the United States and China. It didn't work for Germany and Russia. It just doesn't work. Yeah. Don't do that. Anyway, Germany needs to sort of grow a spine, by which I mean grow a liberal nationalist spine very quickly. Trump, there's no chance, right? It's not even on his radar. All Trump wants to do is fight his domestic enemies. That's all he wants to do. There's no chance of him doing a successful industrial policy. He didn't do it during his first term. He won't do it during his second term. He'll probably cancel the Biden industrial policies that we that we have. So we need Democrats who are like younger, bolder, and more focused on what they need to do. And we need Republicans who are willing to do a Republican industrial policy that's not beholden to activist groups. I don't know where we're going to get them, but hopefully they all watch Econ 102 and they've all watched to the 56 minute mark. Welcome to Econ 102 where economist Noah Smith and I make sense of what's happening in the news, technology, business, and beyond through the lens of economics. Let's jump right in. Hey, Noah. Hello. Hey, how's it going? Oh, it's going all right. How about you? Doing okay. I'd love to deep dive on, on trade today, if, uh, if that's cool with you. Let's do it. Okay, great. So you just wrote this uh, article on, on tariffs. What, why don't you unpack uh, what, what, you're, what you're saying in this article, and then we'll, we'll zoom out. Right. So, so tariffs are, are, you know, going to proliferate across the world, I, I think. Um, partly, you know, maybe if Trump gets elected here, we'll get big tariffs. You know, he's, he's promising like a 60% tariff on uh, Chinese goods and then a 10% tariff on everything. Maybe that'll happen. Maybe that won't. But I think that that's really not the main driver. The main driver is that China is now exporting ridiculous amounts of cars, batteries, steel, solar panels and sort of trailing edge computer chips, the computer chips that are used in like cars and appliances and like not the super high end fancy stuff. So China is basically dumping all those things on the world market. And China is doing this because real estate, which was the big driver of China's economy for decades, imploded and is basically, um, you know, collapsing and, and, you know, there's much wailing and suffering and destruction. And it needs some way to employ people and some way to say like, look, we're generating growth, blah, 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 and some, you know, revenue for companies and well-connected party people and whatever. So anyway, they're like, okay, so what are we going to do? Manufacture more and sell it overseas. And so they do. The things they focused on or the, the commodities they focus on are, are those five things plus, plus other stuff. You know, the, the days when China made simple stuff like, you know, toys and clothing or whatever are well behind us. Like that's almost two decades in the past. At this point, in terms of, of ultra high tech stuff, they're not exporting that to us either. Electric car is high tech, but it's not that high tech. You know what I mean? It's a, it's a battery and sort of like a, a, you know, an axle. <laughs> like it's, it's, it's not as high tech as an internal combustion car, actually. Internal combustion cars are actually a lot. They contain, you know, over a century of esoteric knowledge about how to make this one little engine part. Well, an electric car is pretty easy. It's just a, it's just a wrapper on a battery, honestly. And then a battery is pretty easy. It's just some like, it's just some chemicals and like a piece of metal. I'm, obviously it's not quite this, this simple, but you know, so these are not super high tech things. Um, trailing edge semiconductors, <coughs> you know, that US is hotly debating whether China can mass produce seven nanometer semiconductors, you know, or chips or whatever. And like, but the things in cars are like 128 nanometer chips. You know, it's like not even, there's no question that China can 
produce lots of those in large volumes and it's pumping up the volumes massively. And uh, steel, China doesn't make the best steel stuff in the world. You know, um, actually um, India does. <laughs> India, well, and, and Japan and parts of Europe, they make the best steel in the world. America has like a few couple steel companies that are not us steel that make good steel but but china doesn't china makes like okay steel but yet it makes a lot of it like unbelievably large amounts and this is fueled by cheap coal i could go on and on but the point is that china is just massively flooding export markets with all this stuff and some of them are like yeah sure we'll take that great says vietnam okay cool but india is like no we don't want that get out of here with that and Europe is starting to get upset because they realize their domestic car industry is going to be devastated. Even if, you know, Trump doesn't come back to power, we might get more tariffs here because Elon Musk the other day just said, like, the U.S. car industry will be destroyed without tariffs. I think that tariffs are coming in response to the giant, the great Chinese goods dump. Why don't you explain the theory behind, behind tariffs what, 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 and what are the impacts of, of, of that going to be? There's a few reasons why there's some adjustment mechanisms in the economy that minimize the impact of tariffs. And the main one is exchange rate adjustment. The, the key fact about trade that everyone needs to remember is that in order to buy a country's stuff, in order to buy things from a country, you need the country's currency, right? If you want to buy Chinese goods, you're going to need uh, Chinese yuan or RMB. If you want to buy American goods, you, you're going to need dollars. When you put tariffs on other you know, on a country's exports, you decrease demand for its currency. So when you put, when you tax, you know, Chinese cars, Chinese made cars or whatever, you decrease demand for yuan because people don't need as much yuan, the demand for cars is going to. So people, so what happens then? Well, there's this stabilization mechanism that works counter to your policy, which is the exchange rate. So when there's less demand for yuan, the price of the yuan goes down and the price of the dollar or the euro goes up, Right. And so, or, or the, the rupee, whatever, whatever it is. And so China's exchange rate then depreciates. And then when China's exchange rate depreciates, that makes it cheaper to buy Chinese goods. Now, and then people buy more of them. Now, that is not, that effect is, you know, uh, not enough to cancel out the initial effect of the tariffs, right? The tariffs will reduce the amount that you buy, but it is enough to blunt the impact. It's sort of this, the stabilization mechanism. It's like you push, it pushes back. And so it, it limits the size of the reduction in, in imports that you get from tariffs. Uh, in fact, so when, when Trump did this, you know, Trump unleashed a bunch of tariffs on China starting in, uh, like June 2018 and, and ramping up through 2019. And we did see U.S. imports from China go down. You also saw the yuan get cheaper, right? It became cheaper to buy Chinese stuff you know, sort of economic guesstimates say that maybe about two thirds of that cheapening was was actually due to the tariffs. That compensatory mechanism cancels out part of, of the tariffs. And so that's that's a reason why, you know, tariffs do do less than you you kind of think. Uh, so that's that's sort of reason one. Um, there's more reasons, but uh, so yeah, do say them. But then also I want to hear like, is it, so Elon is wrong. Uh, I mean, no, I mean, that doesn't mean Elon's wrong. Yeah, so you know, let's evaluate his claim. Well, okay. Uh, well, is the U.S. car industry toast without tariffs? Well, no, no. Well, because number one, it's always easy to like. U.S. factories will always be closer to consumers. They'll always be able to make new models to understand U.S. consumers better, to you know, offer better support services, and that's why Japan, after you know, two decades in which Japan, you know, tried really hard to sell cars into the American market. Like we could do this better if we built our factories in America. So now Toyota is the most, you know, or I think it's, um, it's Nissan, which is the most American built car, but Toyota is more American built than like Ford. The Japanese car companies have their factories in Tennessee and Alabama, blah, blah, blah. They're big employers of Americans in Kentucky. So they're big employers of Americans. And that shift, there's always natural economic forces pushing for that shift for very heavy stuff. Shipping a car across the sea just doesn't make as much sense as, as, you know, driving a car down the street for various reasons and, and support services and, and marketing are big parts of this. And so, so I think what would eventually happen is that BYD, the, the biggest Chinese electric car company will eventually like build factories in America. You know, they will eventually invest in America and build factories here, which is kind of a, an interesting turnaround from, you know, us building factories in China 
it's China building factories in the United States. And that's, uh, there may already be a BYD factory. Oh yeah, the BYD has electric buses uh, produced in Lancaster, California. Imagine China investing in factories in California. That's that. So I don't know how, how in trouble American car brands are, but I think that we're not going to buy all our cars on ships from China. I don't think that's going to happen, but it, it could, you know, at the margin, it could really, it could in fact hurt. You know, we'll buy some cars on ships from China. There won't be zero. So I do think that, you know, tariffs are, are one potential way to stop that. The exchange rate mechanism is one reason why it's hard to stop that with, with tariffs, right? We could do, if we really wanted to stop it, we could just do like an import quantity restriction. Just say, okay, you can only buy this many Chinese cars. I think that would probably might backfire by making them sort of in demand and cool. But uh, you could do that. The better way to do to block foreign cars, by the way, is to do non-tariff barriers. And so this is what Turkey's doing. So Turkey basically says, you can't sell cars in Turkey unless you have this massive network of support services by this date, which by the way is next Thursday. So, and then, and then if you miss that date, you're just screwed forever. You can't sell cars in Turkey. So Turkey's basically not quite banned Chinese car imports, but like largely banned them. And so if you really want to do that, you can, you just use regulations and those are much harder to challenge like the WTO because you're like, oh, well, these regulations apply to our companies equally. You know, it's not a, a tariff only applies to foreign explicitly to foreign goods, but a non-tariff barrier is just something that your companies happen to meet and those, their companies don't. And so that's, you know, that's that. And um, so you can use non-tariff barriers, blah, blah, blah. Musk didn't say tariffs, actually. He just said some sort of protect, protection for the market. So that could include that. For tariffs, the exchange rate issue is a problem. Another issue for tariffs is that, remember that when, when a thing says made in China, it doesn't mean the parts are made in China. When a thing says made in Vietnam, it doesn't mean the parts are made in Vietnam. And the parts are really often the more valuable thing. So like, if you're talking about like a laptop or a phone, that's like the ultimate case in which all the values in the parts, right? Like slapping the components of a laptop together is such a cheap thing to do that like a college kid will, can do it and often does, you know, or a high school kid. And so actually making the components requires these incredibly specialized factors. You got to make the chips, you got to make the screen, you got to make them blah, 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 blah. And so, I mean, mostly chips and screen, honestly. It's like a, a, a laptop or phone is mostly wrapper for like, you know, a processor, a memory, a screen and then you know maybe a couple other little things yeah so so that's uh so so value added is important you know like where does the actual expensive valuable stuff get made and if we put tariffs on china if the united states puts tariffs on china we're not taxing the chinese components that are sold to vietnam and then vietnam you know assembles them together and sends them to america and sells it to america we're not taxing that and we're not taxing China Chinese um, car parts that are sent to Mexico uh, to factories that may even be owned by Ford and GM or may, maybe by Chinese companies. And those those cars are sold to America untariffed, completely untariffed. There's, tariffs do not take into account parts content. And the reason for that is that we don't have we don't have uh, data on it. We actually can't do that yet. Uh, sometime in the future, we will be able to do that when we are able to, we have a database that tracks where every part was made. Uh, and then we will be able to do value added uh, tariffs. Right now, we really aren't because it takes years to just track down where all the parts came from and we just don't have the data. So anyway, large parts of Chinese production will then you know, go untaxed by tariffs. Um, so that's, that's a sort of a, a second limitation. Hey. We'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. Your US or your China, how should we be thinking about your optimal sort of tra trade policy, taking everything into account, economic growth, geopolitics? Why don't, why don't you sort of, you know, uh, like sit in this position of thinking about a country's trade policy and describe to us how they should be thinking about it? Well, so that's a really good question because, you know, I was talking about tariffs do this, tariffs don't do that. That's assuming you want to keep out Chinese cars. Maybe you don't. You know, I, I think that the United States w should and will maintain some car industry and battery industry production capacity. But having all of our cars, you know, produced in the United States is not an objective we should have. A lot of these 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 commodities are things we need to, to decarbonize, right? We need more electric cars. We need more solar panels. We need more batteries for everything. And 
buying stuff from China cheaply is a way to quickly do that. You know, China has, you know, the Chinese producers are getting all these subsidies, but they're not making good margins, right? Like they, their domestic market has basically collapsed. They, uh, not collapsed, but like, you know, it's not growing anymore because their economy is, is in trouble from this real estate bust. And so, so, you know, they're selling at a very thin profit margin or maybe even a loss, right? And uh, oftentimes the government's just saying, produce more, produce more. And then, and, and they're like, you know, and the steel factories especially are just like, oh God, we're not making any profit. We're actually taking a loss. It's like, you know, uh, we lose money on every unit we ship, but we make it up on volume. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's basically what's, what China's doing with a lot of these, these commodities like steel. And so, uh, and solar panels, uh, they're not making any profit on that. Electric cars, they'll make some profit on that. Chips, the, the like 128 uh, nanometer chips or whatever, they're not making any profit on that. So it's, like, why do they do it? Why do they do it? Uh, so people can have a job. So people don't like riot and overthrow the government. <laughs> and also because, you know, so they can say, look, we, we are grow Our manufacturing is growing, blah, blah, blah. You should invest in us because they think it'll be good for advertising uh, their country to investors, which it won't. Everybody immediately sees through that. But then like, it's good for them to be able to say, look, we met our 5% growth target, which they didn't, but like, it makes it less of a lie. Uh, and so, but, but I think it's really employment. It's really just, you know, like, <clears throat> oh, you were working in real estate. That didn't work. Get a job for working for an electric car company. Get a job working for a battery company. That's the idea. It's not going to plug that hole, but it's going to like, it'll do something. The other thing that it does, by the way, is it, uh, is if China decides to go to war, It'll have those, the electric car factories will be able to make um, a ton of drones for war. They'll be able to repurpose them to make uncrewed aircraft, which run, some of which run on batteries, and they'll be able to make vehicles. They won't be able to make really heavy vehicles because those still run on internal combustion. You, you don't have a battery powered tank yet, but tanks are increasingly less important. Um, batteries are increasingly more important. Honestly, I actually don't think China's thinking about this that much. We, we would be the, the reason we, everybody, you know, notice that like every rich country has a car industry. Like not every rich country has like a PC making industry, but every rich country has a car industry. And the reason is because World War II was won by car industries with, you know, car factories turned out planes and ships and, you know, all kinds of like tanks and everything, right. Was done by like car companies. And so you can really easily convert a car factory to a tank factory and, with a little effort, you can convert it to a plane factory like at uh, Willow Run, uh, where they made all the B-24 bombers in World War II, where Ford made those bombers. By the way, if, if you get a chance to read about um, Henry Ford and, you know, World War II and, you know, all that stuff, read it and then realizing realize it, it's like you're reading a biography of Elon Musk, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's amazing how parallel those trends are. Say more about that. Oh, Ford and Musk. It's, it's unbelievable how, how the, the, the big difference is that Ford had this, the son that he wanted, you know, Edsel, which the car was named after, obviously, uh, you know, he wanted to, um, sort of take over someday and he was disappointed because Edsel was, was a lib, you know, Edsel would, would hang around with Jews and he would, you know, party with these, these kind of socialist leaning lefty leaning people. And that made Ford really mad. And, um, but Ford sort of had this idea that he was going to take over the, the empire. I think, you know, rumors say that Elon is also mad because his kids are, are kind of libs. But then I don't think Elon has groomed, you know, uh, any of his, his kids. Maybe XAE12 will take over the, the Musk empire. But yeah, Ford, you know, is this titan of industry, built this car company by himself. Ultimately, his, uh, you know, his car company fell behind for a while before, uh, you know, his, his grandson sort of righted the ship in the, in the 50s. Classic, like, founder, very uh, dictatorial in how he ran the thing. And then he, but he, he invented mass production methods that really just beat anything that anyone else had. And it really just changed people's idea of what was possible and revolutionized transit. But then he got really mad uh, at, you know, government sort of intruding on business stuff. He got, he sort of started out as a, as kind of a normie lib and then became increasingly right-wing as time went on. He really just wanted to control what people said about him. So he bought the Dearborn Independent, a, a newspaper, and then he, it became the most widely circulated newspaper in the country because that every Ford dealership sold the Dearborn Independent. And so you're like, oh, you know, that's not comparable to buying Twitter. It was just some little local paper. But yes, but it, then the Ford dealerships started selling this and it became, you know, it was much more popular than like the New York Times or whatever. So he did that. He, he bought the, his equivalent of Twitter, what was available with, with 19, you know, 20s technology or whatever. And then he started running basically anti-Semitic columnists who wrote 
Like there, there's one guy who wrote this long series, like the international Jew. And, and it was like a, people had in, insane attention spans in those days. And so this is like 120 part series. Do you want to read 120 articles about the influence of the international Jew? Well, someone back then did. Wow. And so he ran this guy and he got, you know, everybody yelled at him, all the like, you know, intellectual liberals of the day yelled at him a lot over this. And, and, you know, he fiercely defended his, his honor and said, I'm not an anti-Semite and blah, blah, blah. So it's very similar to, you know, Musk and the, and the sort of Twitter, uh, you know, Nazis who were who were sort of taking over Twitter. <laughs> and then, um, and Ford had factory, a, a, a factory in Nazi Germany, Opel. There was this, there was this, you know, big, big factory in Nazi Germany. And, and basically German factories were more productive uh, than American factories at the time. And so it was like, and they were going to expand into Europe, you know? And so these factories sort of, many people question whether these factories compromised Ford's, you know, uh, loyalty and blah, blah. Ford, uh, for his part, was extremely anti-war in terms of lend-lease. So when, when the Nazis uh, started attacking, um, you know, UK, so they took over France. This is like, uh, you know, 1940, 41, 4041. They, they, they took over France and they were bombing England and they were like threatening to take over England. And they never did because uh, they weren't good and competent enough to do that. But they, they threatened to. And we started doing Lend-Lease, right? Lend-Lease was basically, we gave equipment to the British. The same thing we're doing with Ukraine, right? We just, we sent them equipment. We mailed them some tanks. Uh, we actually weren't very good at war production during the, when we were doing Lend-Lease. We actually kind of sucked. It took us a couple years, at least, to sort of rev up our, our military machine. And then a few more years of World War II till it really reached big levels. But Lend-Lease, you know, Ford was really opposed to this and, and he refused to build military equipment for the United States. And uh, Bill Newton, his former employee, who was himself pretty, uh, you know, conservative, pro-business, uh, you know, anti-New Deal, whatever, but then was sort of co-opted by the Roosevelt people, hired by the Roosevelt people. He went to Ford's office and like tried to persuade him to, uh, this is all in Freedom's Ford, by the way. He went to, to Ford's office and tried to persuade him to make stuff for the government. And Ford is like, Ford's like, no, get the fuck out of here, Ron, and just like yelled at him. And they like had this big screaming match and he went out. And then, you know, Ford used his media influence to try to be like, you know, for U.S. neutrality in World War II. And then Pearl Harbor happened and it was, and Ford realized that like, okay, so this is not, this is not going to happen. <laughs> like, and so Ford is just like, okay, uh, Ford will build military equipment. But then he was still so disgusted with the idea that he left the doing of that to Edsel. Um, who was a very good operations guy, actually. Edsel was pretty skilled. He was, um, Edsel was really sick his whole life. And, uh, and so that limited his effectiveness. And he was also sort of, um, you know, he could never quite live up to his dad's standards. Ironically, his, his son, Ford's grandson, also named Henry Ford, lived up to Ford's standards quite well and turned Ford back into this like massive globe spanning powerhouse and was actually really great. So it's, it's the, the family business thing eventually worked, but Edsel was like actually pretty good. He probably could have done that had Ford not like constantly pressured him and, you know, bullied him. And also um, there's, there's a whole lot of interesting stories here. Uh, there's another uh, book called the Arsenal of Democracy by AJ Baim, which is B-A-I-M-E, which is a great, sort of history of the Ford family during this time. And that's interesting to read. Anyway, so Ford uh, eventually got, you know, sort of got with the program reluctantly and, you know, throughout the war face. Oh, and I, I, I forgot to mention, he had been part of this, the America First League or Society, I don't actually remember, with Charles Lindbergh. At some point, it was clear that this was actually a bunch of literal Nazis. Oh, yeah. So Ford quit, actually. He quit the America First League pretty early on. Uh, because of allegations of, you know, anti-Semitism, blah, blah. Charles Lindbergh uh, took a lot longer to quit. He was a much more ardent sort of admirer of Nazi Germany than Ford was. Uh, you know, Ford didn't actually think Nazi Germany was was that great. He thought like America was the greatest. Lindbergh thought like, wow, we need to be more like Nazi Germany. <laughs> Look how cool they are. Look at their spiffy stuff, you know, like they've got such great planes. And <laughs> Lindbergh was very impressed with Nazis. Anyway, he, he stayed in the America First League longer, but then uh, sort of that kind of collapsed after Pearl Harbor because people realized that America first was not like was America first. It was the opposite of that. It was one of these cases where people just name themselves like the exact opposite of like what they are in one of these movements. I'm sure you can think of other examples. <laughs> like just because you say you're America first, just because you put that name on your society, anyone can do that, right? You can 
I don't even know. Like what's the, what's the best example of like a movement these days that like, you know, calls himself one thing and is exactly the opposite of that thing. Well, you know, uh, how about the, just not these days, but Nazi Germany, the democratic, uh, Socialist. Sure. Democratic People's Republic of Korea. I mean, you know, when I was a kid, we would always say the pro-life movement, which was very ardently pro-death penalty. Yeah. It's like, come on, you know, but, but you can call yourself whatever you want. And so anyway, that, that sort of collapsed. And so, so that, those are the, the parallels between, between Musk and Ford. If the, the history repeating itself in this case would be that we get into a fight with China, China destroys our bases around Taiwan as a prelude to an invasion then people are going to ask Elon Musk some hard questions about like, how about your factories in China, sir? <laughs> and like, are you really, does being America first mean that you, you don't support us fighting back after they kill a whole bunch of Americans? So that would be the, that would be the hypothetical in which history would repeat itself. Cause that's what happened with Henry Ford. You know, Japanese empire killed a lot of our guys. We were like, okay, fuck them. We're going to go get them. And then you sort of had to get with the program at that point. And that created a nationalism that lasted, I would say up till the Vietnam war. Even if that doesn't happen to that same degree, it does seem that at some point Elon is going to have to, you know, answer some questions about about it. if if that sort of conflict pick, picks up, he's going to have to make a move to some degree. No, sure, right. And you know, this is he, the Elon. Elon will get a big help, uh, helping hand, helping push here from uh, Xi Jinping, because Xi Jinping is going to stick the shiv in Tesla pretty hard. Xi Jinping does not want the electric car market to be ruled by, you know, foreign branded cars, even if the foreign branded cars are physically made in China. He does not want that, right? Uh, Xi Jinping wants the world to be ruled by BYD cars and, and, you know, Chinese brand cars. He does, you know, Tesla, Tesla making its, its electric cars in China is an intermediate step for Xi Jinping. It is an intermediate step that he will then dispense with and he will shiv the fuck out of Tesla just as he is, is doing to Apple right now. So you see this with Apple. Apple put all its factories in China, often through like a third company like Boxconn. Now China is sticking the shiv in Apple by making people buy Huawei phones instead, by basically like using non-tariff barriers to attack Apple as a company. China can do whatever it wants. Like it doesn't, you know, like it just, it just does whatever it, it pleases, basically, whatever Xi Jinping pleases. So Apple is now like panicking, right? Apple is now looking for the exits. It's looking to, to India primarily, somewhat to Vietnam. But it's really looking for other places to make huge, huge numbers of phones. Uh, where can we make huge numbers of phones? And I think India is the answer that it's it's getting. And so it's it's ramping up as fast as possible. But in the, because one of the big reasons that Apple was in China is because then you're close to the Chinese customer. Then you can sell to China. It's this giant market. Everyone who wanted to go to China, you know, put their factories and offices in China always thought of this market of, you know, 1.4 billion consumers, not literally the, the babies and they're not consuming, but it's like billion, a billion consumers. Oh my God. If we got even a small sliver of that market, it's insane revenue. It's insane profits for us. Right. And so that, that did work for a few companies. There were a few companies that that really happened for. And then you know, a lot of companies that didn't happen for Apple, it looked like it was happening. Now it's not going to happen because app, because China has no intent of letting the future be dominated by American brand phones. Of course, it, it will be outside China, but China has no desire to have everybody in China using a foreign branded phone. And China will have no desire to have people driving foreign branded cars. They do not want, the, you know, Tesla cars. And, and Tesla is one of their big competitors in Europe. And Tesla's one of their big competitors in America and, you know, other countries like, I don't know, Brazil, Indonesia, yep. all over the world. Tesla is, as people shift toward electric cars, since electric cars have improved in performance so much that they are now the best thing that you can get, basically. You know, Tesla's the, the leading, you know, the most, that's the luxury brand. It's the nice electric car brand. But BYD is insanely cheap and pretty good. Tariffs will not protect America, you know, will not protect Tesla's market share in Indonesia. American tariffs will not protect Tesla's market share in Brazil or Tesla's market share in Italy or blah, 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 or wherever. It will not protect Tesla's market share anywhere outside the United States. So something else will be needed if we want Tesla to win that competition. Everyone talks about like, oh, Elon is compromised because he has these factories in China. I think ultimately that will not be true because he knows that China is going to shiv him. 
he knows it's a matter of time before Xi Jinping shivs him. Xi Jinping is the, is the alpha male and private entrepreneurs, be they Jack Ma or Pony Ma or, uh, you know, any of the other guys named Ma. No, any, like any of the other Chinese domestic entrepreneurs, you know, these guys are nothing to Xi Jinping. They're like little, little nothing people. And Elon Musk is like nothing to Xi Jinping. What's Elon's backup plan or, or what, what's he going to do if that happens? I don't know. Uh, he's going to have to make cars somewhere else. Make cars somewhere else, but also more importantly, sell cars somewhere else. And I don't know how, you know, Tesla is going to have difficulty competing on price with BYD. They're going to have a real, real trouble. And that's one reason why their stock has suffered. Tesla's stock is not suffering because like Elon's shit posting on Twitter. Tesla's stock is suffering because BYD is selling cars really cheap and like they're not bad. It's like for, for many customers in the world, cheap and not bad beats like, you know, much more expensive and, and slightly more awesome. And so, so I don't know what he's going to do. I don't know. I, this has to do with the fact that I am not a car company executive and I do not actually understand what to do. I don't think there's necessarily anything he can do right now. I think, um, if Europe preferentially puts tariffs on Chinese made cars, that means that Tesla's factories in Europe will have a much easier, Europeans will buy Tesla's from European factories, right? From factories in and around Europe, preferentially to Chinese cars. So that, but that, that depends on Europe actually, you know, sort of like waking up, growing a spine and taking concerted action. Europe only takes concerted action against like, you know, like tracking cookies. That's the, that's the a real great menace that Europe projects itself against, right? The menace of tracking cookies. Like, and then, or like, you know, chatbots. Like, that's what Europe can protect itself against. Like Europe actually protecting, like Europe actually putting tariffs on Volkswagen owned electric cars in China, like made in China, like Volkswagen made, like, like cars that are made by Volkswagen factories in China. Is Europe really going to tax that? Like, are they going to really like grow a spine and do that? It's not clear. Like Europe is, is just a giant fail whale in so many ways. Like they can't even like build shells to like supply Ukraine to hold off Russia. Right. They're like, Oh no, we only have a, you know, 10 times the GDP of Russia and three times the population. We can't hold them off. America, help, help. <laughs> and they're like, we're going to just cancel all our nuclear power plants because we saw some activists, you know, demonstrating a nuclear. It's like the most helpless crap. We, we, this is partly our fault. We infantilized Europe because of World War II. We didn't, we, we were, sh we short sightedly, they said that the purpose of, um, <clears throat> the, of NATO, in the early days was to keep the Americans in the Russians out and the Germans down. That was a very commonly said thing in the early decades of NATO. The idea was that Germany wouldn't become an independent power, wouldn't rise from the ashes for a third try at world domination. It would, you know, it would be a subordinate to America and the Americans would remain engaged. And that was why the British and the French and all these people wanted NATO, right? Partly because it made Germany sort of subordinate, but you know, that infantilized Germany a bit. Germany needs to have a, have a robust self-interested nationalism that is not Nazi. It, it's been a long time since that was the case. It's been a long time since Germany had, you know, Germany has never had a, you know, democratically supported robust nationalism, liberal nationalism, right? They never had that. The closest thing they ever had was under Bismarck, right? And that was not very liberal at all. Like Bismarck was not liberal, but it was, that was, that's closer than anything else they've had ever because they were formed in like the 1870s, right? Like, so, so Germany needs to, to rediscover muscular liberal nationalism. It needs to rediscover like that, you know, FDR style, uh, liberal nationalism that is not, that is neither Nazi nor helpless flailing green party self-destructive crap. They need that, that middle path. You know, maybe the Christian Democrats can, can rediscover this in Germany. Hopefully they can because, you know, but Angela Merkel wasn't getting it done, right? Angela Merkel was like, maybe if we buy a whole bunch of stuff from Russia, they'll be our friends. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's like, that's one of those things that never works. Like, you know, when, a, when the evil wizard is like, maybe if I turn into a giant snake, like, no, no, do not turn into a snake. That will not work. And it's like, no, do not make yourself dependent on importing stuff from your main geopolitical enemy that doesn't work it didn't work for the united states and china it didn't work for germany and russia it just doesn't work yeah don't do that anyway germany needs to sort of grow a spine by which i mean grow a liberal nationalist spine very quickly so circling back let's say we could go back 15 20 years and we know what we know now 
what would should the U.S. have done differently as regards of its uh, trade policy or, or its policy towards towards China? Well, back in the 2000s, when they were really manipulating their currency, we should have branded them a currency manipulator and taken efforts to force them to not do that as much. That would have been really smart. And, and so for the, for the audience who may be unfamiliar, ex- explain wh- how that currency manipulation works and what, what are the impacts? Why well, is it right. good for them or bad for us? Back in the days when we took World Trade Organization rules uh, seriously, there was this thing where you're, you're not allowed to like do retaliatory trade barriers, tariffs, and other things like that on a country unless they meet certain unless they do certain no-nos. And so you have to basically brand them a, a currency manipulator. You have to say, okay, you're manipulating your currency and therefore we're going to slap you a whole bunch of penalties on you until you stop doing that. And we didn't do it. We refused to do it because American companies were making stuff very cheaply in China and because we wanted the Chinese market and because we wanted to keep the peace with China and we thought they'd be liberal. We thought they'd be you know, a responsible stakeholder in the international order, blah, 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 blah. And so we didn't do any of that. We didn't brand them a currency manipulator and take action. And we should have. The fact that they did manipulate their currency pretty very heavily in the 2000s, that hollowed out a lot of our manufacturing in ways that we were overly optimistic based on our competition with Japan, Germany, Korea, and these other things. That the competition with them didn't actually end up hollowing out our manufacturing. There were lots of fears that Japan was going to just manufacture everything and America wasn't. You know, and that that never was possible. That was never going to happen. It never came close to happening. There were many reasons why that wasn't going to happen. It did happen with China. It, you know, obviously, America still manufactures a decent amount of stuff. But like a, a lot of the things we feared happening with Japan that never could have happened and with Germany to some extent actually did happen with China. China actually, you know, because China was so much cheaper, like Japanese wages were pretty close to ours. Right. And Japanese costs, materials costs and land costs were in some ways higher than ours. It was this rich country. It was never going to take all our, our stuff. But then China was this enormous country, you know, with this enormous domestic market who could take advantage of clustering and agglomeration effects. And they were so much cheaper than us in the 2000s. Like you could make stuff in China for like a fifth of what you could make in America. It was nuts. The cost advantage was unbeatable. And so you just, everyone went to China. And also this, this factories weren't going to like go to Japan because of the Japanese market. Cause well, first of all, because Japan protected their market with non-tariff barriers in the eighties, but also because uh, Japan's small, right? Like the lure of the great Japanese market just wasn't happening. Like it's just one more niche market. Now Japan is about a third as big as America. At that time is maybe closer to half, but so it wasn't actually that big. The Chinese market, the potential market for like a billion consumers, everyone wanted to go to China. So this, this, um, when you add, so, so letting China manipulate its currency threw fuel on that fire. And there's lots of papers showing absolute devastation for American factory workers in the decade of the 2000s. Now that stopped later, you know, but like, but then the damage was really done. You know, Chinese costs rose and, you know, China sort of maxed out on a lot of the stuff, but, but by then the damage was really done. And the, but the other factor that we never thought about that we should have thought about, um, was geopolitics. The idea that Japan was our ally. You know, Japan, you know, since since World War II had been our, our ally, but really since the 60s had been America's staunch Cold War ally and hurting Japan's economy really hurts hurts us because it hurts one of our most important allies. So but with China, letting China do, you know, like as much manufacturing as Europe and the U.S. combined, I mean, like to some degree, we couldn't a lot of that we couldn't have stopped or or, you know. Um, also trying to keep China down would have been kind of a cruel thing to do when they had a, like so many poor people to start out with. But the point is that allowing us to lose so much competitiveness put us in a bad situation militarily relative to China. It will make it easier for China to kick our ass in a protracted conventional conflict. And so that was really a bad idea. Nothing like that was ever possible with Germany and Japan. They were our allies forever. Um, but, but with China, really, this was a giant blunder. We should have maintained a lot more domestic manufacturing capability through things like industrial policy, through, uh, you know, having a balanced currency, not having the, the, the strong dollar thing that basically makes our exports incredibly uncompetitive. All these kind of things. There's a lot of things we should have done that we didn't do. And so we lost our, our crown as one of the main factories of the world. And now maybe we can get it back, but that's uh, dependent on, um, <clears throat> Congress. On Congress doing what exactly? Well, so, so Congress has to fund and sustain the industrial policies we've already done. The IRA and CHIPS Act were great, but we need to keep that money going. So if Trump comes in and just cancels that, we're screwed on that front. So we also need to do friend shoring. And that's a thing that your average American isn't going to care about or, or, and may even be scared of. 
we need to move factories from China to India. But when the average American hears that Apple's building factories in India, they think the alternative is America. They don't realize the alternative is China. So we need to do a lot more friend shoring. And that's a thing that is not popularly understood. We need to basically focus on, on friends much more. Um, Japan can actually build us a lot of, of semiconductors, even as we build ourselves semiconductors. Japan can also take over a lot of that too. Remember that China is as big as US and Europe combined and is going to manufacture as much as US, Europe and Japan combined. And then at that point, we won't be able to just rival China by ourselves. We need to rival China in a giant coalition of like non-China manufacturers. And so that's going to have to include Europe and Japan and Korea and all these places, right? Taiwan, Vietnam, India, Indonesia. We're going to have to get a giant gang together. We can't do it all ourselves. We can't go it ourselves. This is different than World War II, actually. In World War II, we didn't really, you know, supply chains weren't so long. Uh, we were much bigger than Japan and Germany, right? We were just, we were the big country. It was us and, and USSR was equally big, but they were more dysfunctional and they were being in the process of being massively invaded and we were just better at making stuff than they were. And so we were the big country. We were the China of that day and we could do it all ourselves. We're no longer the China. China is now the China. And, you know, we need this giant gang. And so Congress needs to implement friendshoring incentives and actually do free trade agreements. The TPP was a great idea. We need to replace that with something better that includes both Japan and India and hopefully, you know, and Korea and hopefully like Indonesia and stuff like that. People still got it into their head that like free trade bad, but like, no, free trade with your allies is important because we need, we, we need a gang to face down the really big country, China. So China never liberalized like we thought they, they would, but they also had tremendous growth would they have had more growth if they liberalized or did the sort of non-free trade actions that they underwent, did they serve their economy? How do you, what's the right way to think about the trade-offs? Well, so, so in terms of liberalization, China didn't become like a nice, happy, friendly, free democratic country, blah, blah, blah. But during the Jiang and Hu years, it really liberalized in many ways. You, um, you could, uh, so like there were all these famous Mao impersonators. You could, you could dress up as a Mao clown, Mao Zedong clown. Right. And a lot of these uh, people were women, right. Dressing up as Mao. And so you could have, you could have women dressing up as Mao and making fun of Mao in Hu Jintao's China. You could do that. You could have a blog. You could be an independent newspaper, right? You had, you had lawyers arguing cases. You had labor law. You had environmental law. You had people protesting against environmental devastation in rural areas and not crushed by the central government or the army or whatever. Nobody got shot. Like the police would fight with you. Some, you know, local police would fight with you, but they weren't crushed, right? You had all these, you had these things. You had a development of civil society in terms of labor and environmental stuff. And you had feminist groups. You had, you had gay groups in China. You had like, um, uh, you had pop culture fandoms with all kinds of like, you know, alternative stuff. You had, um, you, Basically, they maintained authoritarianism, but it was an increasingly thin crust of authoritarianism. Like you couldn't, you couldn't talk shit about the Communist Party, but you could do a lot of other stuff. You could talk shit about your local leaders, right? They even implemented like local elections that were actually pretty free and fair in some places. In like you could, you could vote for your mayor and you could have multiple parties contest the mayorship, right? And you could read all these books from America and all this. We say they didn't liberalize because they didn't become like South Korea, but they, but they didn't liberalize zero either. There was a significant amount of liberalization, uh, that happened that, uh, Americans didn't know about, um, because we don't go to China. We don't get out. We don't know what's going on in other countries. If you knew Chinese people and if you read Chinese blogs and stuff, the liberalization during the Zhang and Hu eras was very apparent. Um, just it didn't go all the way. Xi Jinping has reversed essentially, mo you know, most of that. Xi Jinping has, you know, he's, he's like canceled the, uh, the, you know, the fandoms and the gay groups and the stuff. He's put all, he threw all the labor and environmental lawyers in jail, right? He threw them all in prison. Activism, you can't do that anymore. Like there's just nothing you can do. You can't read American. It's getting like harder and harder to read foreign books to like foreign stuff is getting banned on mass in China. He's been doing this since the day he took office, which is like 2013, 2012, 20 late end of 2012. And so he's been doing this since then. And like China has been getting more and more repressive for over a decade now. And um, this is the big, the big failure uh, is not 
the big failure came in the 2010s. The big failure of US-China policy came eventually. And we can see with hindsight now that it was a failure because the fact that China's political system never liberalized meant that there was always going to be some guy like Xi Jinping who would come along and, and you know, uh, take over, right? And um, yeah, like um, Xi, a Xi Jinping was always on the way, right? What people don't know is that Deng Xiaoping, who was really the great man of modern Chinese history and really the architect of, of modern China um, until Xi Jinping came along, he handpicked Zhang and Hu to be his successors. There was not a competitive process. China never developed a good way of selecting a new leader that did not involve democracy. They never invented one. They pretended to invent one where they went through all the like formality of, uh, oh, we're gonna search for a person. Well, wow, we found this guy named Zhang Zemin. No, like that was fake. It was Deng who said, Zhang, he's the dude. And after him, Hu Jintao will be the dude. And he just said that, right? And then it happened because he had like tons and tons of old party Dung loyalists, even after Dung died, of course, he people remembered that he said this and like there was nobody really wanted to challenge the Dung's edict on this. Like, and so then right after he left office, he's still alive. After who left office, the system died. Basically, the, the 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 crown went to the guy who was best able to backstab everybody else. There was this guy named Bo Xilai who was gonna look like he would challenge for the top spot, and Xi Jinping had his guys throw Bo Xilai in prison for the rest of his life. And so, basically, this this whole like intra-party mafia style like knifing of people returned, and so a strong man took over, and that's what happens. Anyway, that is what happened, and uh, so here we are. At what point? Does it make sense, if if any, to implement tariffs if you're a country? How, how would you, or are you just rarely ever a fan of of it? How, how would you think about it? I'm saying you can do it, but it's just not going to do as much as you think. But when should you do it? When should you do it? You should, tariffs should be more of sort of uh, an emergency measure to prevent like a giant dump of goods, I think. So when, you know, Chinese government goes out and says, okay, make a crap ton of, of steel, you can say, okay, well, we're just putting a tariff on Chinese steel so that supply networks don't get frozen in in the pattern of buying everything from China during that brief period where they dump a lot of stuff. You can also use them as a threat because they do hurt the other country's economy a bit. You can use them as a threat to, to force China or, or pressure China to not do things like manipulate its currency or you know dump a bunch of cheap, profitless stuff on our markets. Blah, blah. So you can use it as a threat. You can use it as like an emergency measure. But over the long term, it is not going to be successful in protecting your domestic industries. You'll need other stuff for that. And, and what are the other best mechanisms to, to, to do the same thing, to get the same result? I would say you're going to need to do industrial policy. You're going to need to pay your companies to export. You know, you're going to we're going to need to if we want Tesla to compete with BYD throughout the world, we're going to need to actually like subsidize and support Tesla, which we already have done to like a good degree. But like, so give Elon Musk more money. Yes. Well, that's what we'll need to do. And, and other, you know, US EV makers basically reward exports and some, but, but don't reward them forever. Reward companies that can't, that find ways to export. Uh, th this is called export discipline and then later kill them. So right now China's culling all the EV companies that didn't succeed. Well, we should do that too. Right. Tesla succeeded. But then so 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 actually what we did with Solyndra in solar panels was actually it was good. It failed and died. Right. We gave them money. They failed. They died. That's good. OK, because ultimately, if we keep doing this, we'll find some companies that work. Right. And Tesla is an example of a big success that we created with the same the same program that, that gave loans to Solyndra that funded Solyndra also funded Tesla, you know, whose whose increase in market cap has been many orders of magnitude larger than the loss we took on Solyndra. It's like, um, you know, hundreds of millions versus like hundreds of billions. It's like, come on, no, not comparable. And so we're going to need to take some losses and experiment and uh, do industrial policy so we can do coordinated trade barriers along with like Europe and India. We could do like a tripartite thing with the US, Europe and India. Also get like Japan and South Korea in on that and, and maybe some other countries like, you know, Turkey, Brazil, et cetera. And then we can basically do unified standards of like keeping out Chinese dumping. We could do, we'll need allies for this. That's not the kind of thing that Trump is good at or cares about or even knows is a thing at all. Like, 
it is the kind of thing that Biden could do if he were, you know, a little more on the ball and that some of the people, you know, like Jake Sullivan could do this, right? He's a young guy. He thinks a lot about this kind of stuff. One problem with Biden is, you know, the, it's, it's slow. The Biden administration is slow moving. Um, it needs more like, you know, bold, dynamic stuff. Um, is it partly because Biden's old? Yes, probably, but also partly because Democrats are a party that has to please a lot of you know, sort of activist interest groups. And uh, what we need is we need a Republican who is willing to do like a multilateral industrial policy. We need, uh, you know, Reagan would have done this if Reagan existed today. George H.W. Bush would have done this if he existed today. But those guys do not, they're not around, right? Nikki Haley might do it, right? If, if Haley were elected. Trump, there's no chance, right? It's not even on his radar. All Trump wants to do is fight his domestic enemies. That's all he wants to do. He, there's no chance of him doing an, a successful industrial policy, right? He he didn't do it during his first term. He won't do it during his second term. He'll probably cancel the Biden industrial policies that we that we have. So we need Democrats who are like younger, bolder, and more focused on what they need to do. And we need Republicans who are willing to do a Republican industrial policy that's not beholden to activist groups. We need all those things. I don't know where we're going to get them, but hopefully they all watch Econ 102 and they've all watched to the 56 minute mark. Exactly. And that is a perfect place to, to wrap. We were right at the right at the hour. Uh, no, this was a great conversation about trade. And uh, as always, until next time. Until next time. Hey, everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at ericaturpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together.